Well, good morning. Good to be with you guys again. If you are new or visiting, my name's Brandon, one of the pastors here. As always, good to open God's Word with you guys again this morning. Uh, if you've been with us this fall, we've been going through the books of First uh, and Second Peter, and they're letters in the New Testament that are written by the Apostle Peter, one of the 12 disciples, to a group of Christians who are living in kind of uh, the, the Roman Empire in, a, in an area in kind of in today, it would be kind of modern-day Turkey. And one of the things that's happening um, that's kind of really bringing about the writing of this letter to these Christians is that they're starting to experience some suffering um, and some persecution for their faith. And what was happening is that their love for Jesus, their allegiance to him as the one and true king, the one who their lives were based around, it was actually changing the way that they lived in ways that the people and the society around them saw and experienced and in ways that were apparent and obvious. And and uh, their society and their families, their employers, their friends, they began to ostracize and mock and even kind of begin to push these Christians to the margins of society for their faith. And what's happening is that these Christians were living as exiles in their home because they were living as citizens of a different kingdom. They were living as citizens of God's kingdom. And what had happened is that their change of citizenship had changed their purpose. And instead of living for themselves, they, they've been given a new purpose to be sent as God's ambassadors, that they might live for him, that they might demonstrate him, they might declare who he is and all that he has done. And chapter 2 is kind of like the, one of the central themes of the letter. And Peter says that the, the reason that God's given us this purpose, the reason he's given us this new identity and a new calling so that people might come to know and love and follow him. And so this morning, we're actually going to uh, finish up our study in the book of 1 Peter. And then um, between now and Christmas, we'll uh, study the shorter letter of 2 Peter. And so we'll have 1 and 2 Peter studied by the end of the, 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 the year here. But this morning, uh, we're going to wrap up uh, our study in 1 Peter. And what we're going to see is that Peter ends his letter to these uh, Christians and, and to us as we study it. He, lends, he ends it with one last command. It's a, a command that comes in, in light of all that he's been teaching them. It's a command that comes in light of all that he's been reminding them about throughout the letter. And the command is just simply this, stand firm. He says it three times in these last few verses, you'll see. He says, stand firm in the truth about the gospel that he spent the whole letter reminding them about. Stand firm in the faith, even in the midst of suffering. Stand firm in light of the end that is coming. Peter's uh, words in our passage this morning, they reminded me uh, a lot about this scene from the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I was like in high school and all the Lord of the Rings movies came out. But man, just fantastic, right? And so I love, I don't like, there's always great battle scene, you know, in, in a lot of those movies, so many great battle scenes. And what is a great battle scene without a great rousing battle speech, right? And so near the end of the trilogy, at the, at the end of the Return of the King, like right before like the fifth fake ending, um, man, that movie went on a long time. Side note, anyways. So at the, during the end of that movie, right, there's this, there's this battle, right? And Frodo is about to, he's about, he's like in, he's like at Mount Doom, and he's about to chuck the ring in there, right? And so the armies of men are standing at the Black Gate, and it's this massive gate. And basically, they're on this mission. They're just trying to, like, start a fight in order to uh, distract Sauron from keeping, any, anyways, the, it, it, the details don't really matter. So anyways, there's this, there's this big battle, right? And so uh, it's nearing the climax of the whole story, and everybody is freaking out, right? 
So they're, they're like vastly outnumbered by um, the enemy that's there. And everybody's like looking at this giant black wall, which has like doom basically written on it, right? And everybody's freaking out. And they feel basically like it's kind of a suicide mission, right? They're just, they're just trying to distract him so that, so that they can just, Frodo can get there and, and fix it and win, the, and win the war, right? And so uprides Aragorn, and he's, the, here the, he's their, you know, their leader, and he gives this rousing battle speech, which I will attempt to summarize rather than recreate, <laughs> because I just don't have a big enough sword, you know, it's just, it wouldn't be the same, right? And so everybody's, everybody's freaking out, you can tell everybody's shaking, the armor's kind of rattling and stuff, and he rides up, and basically his message to them is like, don't run. His message to them is, hold your ground, stand firm. And he says, I know you're freaking out. I'm freaking out too, because it's a giant doom wall, right? And everybody's going to die. And he says, there's this line, in, there's this line in his speech, and he says, he says, there will be a day, basically, when we give in to fear. There'll be a day when, we, when the, our courage fails and when we turn and when we run instead of stand our ground and instead of fight. And there's this great, he says, but today is not that day. And he like repeats it a bunch of times and you're like, let's do this, let's kill some orcs or whatever it is you're trying to kill, right? And at the close of his great battle speech here, right? So he's kind of given this great battle speech and his last line is, right? For all that you hold dear on this earth, stand and fight. Hold your ground. And Peter's words this morning reminded me a lot about that battle speech at the end of Lord of the Rings. And Peter knows that the Christians he's writing to, like, they're afraid. They're starting to experience suffering and trial. And Peter knows it's, it's only going to get worse from there. And so like Aragorn did for the armies of men, Peter does for the people of God. And he bids them, Stand your ground and fight. See, but the enemy that Peter is writing about, it's not a physical one. And the weapons that Peter is instructing them to use aren't swords or spears or giant eagles that come to the rescue. And their motivation isn't to preserve all that they hold dear in this world. Now they're fighting a spiritual battle with the weapons of humility and wisdom and faith. And they fight not based on all they hold dear in this world, but they're to stand their ground and they're to hold firm in their faith in light of what Jesus has already secured for them in the next world. So Peter says, stand your ground. Don't give in to fear. Don't give up on the gospel because of persecution. Don't compromise your beliefs. Don't compromise your faith. Don't compromise the way that you live because the surrounding culture pressures you to do it. Even if it costs you, stand firm. Hold fast. In our passage this morning, as we study what we'll see, is that Peter highlights three ways that we need to arm ourselves if we're going to be able to stand firm in that kind of a battle, if we're going to be able to hold our ground. And he says that we're going to need to replace ignorance with arrogance, we're going to need to replace pride with humility, and we're going to need to replace our weakness with God's strength. Like that, let's pray and we'll read our passage and study this morning. God, thanks so much for your word. We're so grateful for you and for our time together. God, I'm just grateful that your word is like true for us just as it was true for them. God, we need uh, your word spoken into our hearts so that we might live for you. And so, God, we just ask that you would fill us, uh, fill me with your spirit so I'd be able to helpfully 
rightfully proclaim the truth that's there and that you'd give us ears and just you'd enables us to respond and apply God's word, your word to our hearts and lives. And so we just ask that for our good and for your glory that you do that this morning. We love you, God. Amen. Amen. Let's read our passage. We wrap up 2 Peter. We're in uh, verses 6 through 14. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time, and cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering as you are. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. So to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. And so does my, uh, my son Mark. To greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So three ways we need to arm ourselves in order to be able to stand firm for the faith. One, we've got to replace ignorance with awareness. Verse 8 says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Peter's saying, if we're going to be able to stand firm for our faith, you need to be ready for battle. You need to be alert. You need to be sober-minded. You can't be ignorant. You need to be aware. This is the third time Peter has in his letter. The third time he said, be alert and sober-minded. The third time he's reminded us about that. And if you remember, all the way back in chapter 1, he said, he said uh, set your minds on the truth of the gospel. He said, be alert and sober-minded. Set your hearts on that. And we said, literally what Peter said is, gird up the loins of your mind, right? And we said that, in that day, they'd wear tunics, and they'd wrap them around them. And when they were trying to get ready for battle, a tunic was like, although incredibly comfortable leisure wear, was not great for running into battle, because you got like a tunic, you know, run, trapped around your legs. And so they would wrap their tunic up around them, and they'd tuck it in so that they were ready for battle, so that they'd be able to run into battle. And so Peter says, be alert and sober-minded. That word, sober it refers to the idea of being clear-minded and self-controlled in a way that's free from confusion and from driving passions. You see, if we're to be able to stand firm, we need to be aware. We need to pay attention to what is influencing us, to what is tempting us, to what is consuming us, what's getting in the way of our ability to run into battle. Because the devil is constantly, as Peter says, prowling around looking for someone to devour. And if we're not aware of our own hearts, we're not aware of the schemes that he uses, will surely fall victim. So Peter says, you got to be aware of yourself, and you need to be sober-minded so you can be aware of your enemy, the devil. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers in this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He says, your enemy isn't people. Although it feels like people are oppressing you. It feels like people are persecuting you. He says, people aren't your enemy. He says, Satan and sin and death and the spiritual forces at work, that's the real enemy. The devil is the real enemy. He is a serious foe and you can't be ignorant about him. Peter says, he 
he's like a lion. He describes him like a lion that's constantly looking for someone to devour. One commentator writes, the goal of the devil is to devour. His desire is to annihilate the Christian and collectively the church by assimilating them back into the evil ways of the world. So we've got to be aware of where we're tempted to be consumed by something other than Jesus so we can be on guard against the devil's schemes. You see, what happens is, He lures us in with sin he knows that is tempting to us. And then once we give in to sin, he feeds us lies that keep us in cycles of guilt and shame and keep us in cycles where we're stuck in that, in like the weight of that and the guilt of that and the shame of that. Because what he knows is that when we feel like failures and we feel like hypocrites and we feel like there's nothing right or good about who we are, then that keeps us being able to stand firm and just allows us to more quickly give in to sin and just go down that rabbit trail. So we've got to be aware. We've got to be aware of what keeps us from being alert and focused and ready. What keeps us, what consumes us other than Jesus so that we can be aware of the devil's schemes to use that against us. But lastly, Peter says, you've got to be aware of your fellow soldiers. He says, it's easy to feel alone in suffering, like you're on an island and, and the world is just against you. He says, we've got to remember we're not alone. We're part of God's family, brothers and sisters who are with us. Peter says, be aware of the devil, resist him, standing firm in the faith. He says, because you know that believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. I follow a few Facebook pages that help me stay aware of what's going on in the lives of Christians kind of around the world and helps give me context for the suffering or for the trials or for the experiences that I see or experience here. I think if we're honest, we have so, so much freedom. And it's easy to feel like a, a tiny opposition to that freedom is much bigger than it really is. And I think we often need to take context into the ways that God's people are being persecuted around the world in ways we, we really can't even dream of what that would look like here. And so I try to follow some things that keep me aware of some of that stuff because it, it gives me context for that, and it also keeps me prayerful. I know that I need prayer when I'm in the midst of suffering, and so I know others do as well. So Peter says, be aware of your brothers throughout the world who are suffering for Jesus' name But also this has the local church family in context as well. In the beginning of chapter 5, which Aaron preached on a few weeks back, Peter's talking about the role of leaders in the church, and he uses this language about shepherds who are guarding the flock. One commentator I thought just really insightfully pointed out, she said, the roar of a lion would scatter a flock of sheep in a panic. And so when a lion is on the prowl, neither the shepherd nor the sheep sleep, but both are alert and watchful. See, for Aaron and I, I think as your leaders, that looks a lot like us praying for you guys and being aware of what's going on in your lives, the good stuff and the bad stuff, so that we can be alert and so that we can be prayerful and we can be watchful, but so that we can help you to be watchful as well. See, we need God's family together if we're going to be able to stand firm in your faith. You know, there's... um, When you're alone... It's easy to be attacked, and you need God's family with you. So we need to replace ignorance with a sober awareness if we want to stand firm in our faith. And secondly, we need to replace pride with humility. 
Verse 6 says, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand. And verse 5, right before our passage here, the verse right before it, Peter quotes Proverbs chapter 3, and he says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. See, pride is the opposite of humility, and if humility is what God loves and favors and blesses, then pride is what the enemy, the devil, loves and favors and blesses. See, letting pride go unchecked in our lives is like leaving a wide open door. It's like an open invitation for Satan to come and work in our lives. See, pride is about us. Pride is about you. It's about me. It's about us being right. It's about us being first. It's about us being most important or most value. And at the root of pride, it's just about you or me wanting to be God. That's why God opposes the proud, because there's just one God. I think so often the issues in my own marriage, they stem out of my own pride, and it drives a wedge between Hannah and I sometimes, and it keeps us not just, it doesn't just begin issues, it keeps us from resolving issues, because when we argue, like, I just, sometimes I feel this, just this need to be right, and even when I realize that part of what's going on is my fault, even if not all of it is my fault, what happens is sometimes it, like, I just like, I don't want to admit that. I want to be right and I don't want to appear as weak or I don't want to appear as wrong or I don't want to apologize for my own stupidity. And it keeps us from reconciling. See, pride keeps us from asking each other for help and it keeps us from asking God for help. Pride always leads to self-dependency and isolation. It's easy to attack somebody who is all alone. Just watch like any Discovery Channel show, right? The narrator, there's a mother lion. She's waiting in the grass. She's picked her target. A young gazelle has creeped unwittingly into the open field and then wham, right? Oh, sorry, baby gazelle. She gone, right? <laughs> like that, that's what happens, right? The lion, the lion doesn't go, ooh, a giant pack of gazelles. I'll go for the middle one. No, they go for the one on the outside. They go for the one that is alone. What happens is that pride always leads to isolation. It always leads to self-dependency. It leads to arrogance. It leads to isolation, being alone. And that's what Satan wants because it's easy to attack somebody who is alone. But while pride always leads to self-dependency and isolation, humility always leads to dependence on God and community. See, to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand is about us seeking rightly who God is, but it's also about us understanding rightly who we are. See, we're sinners in need of grace, but we're also God's chosen people, and the balance of those two is, is what enables us to root out pride because we know how much we desperately need God's grace. We know how messed up our hearts are, and we know how like undeserving of his grace and forgiveness we are. And at the same time, the gospel, the balance of our understanding of who we are and who God is, it allows us, like verse 7 says, to cast all our anxiety on him because he proved that he cares for us. See, the power of the gospel is that it both reminds us of our great need and it reminds us about how much God's met our need. What it does is it the gospel produces in us a humility that is joyful, that's dependent, that's full of peace, even in the midst of trials, because we know that God will lift us up in due time, not because we deserve it, not because we are always faithful, but because Jesus was both of those things 
on our behalf for us. He's secured our unmerited and undeserved inheritance. Like chapter 1 said, he's keeping it for us. So in due time, God will raise us up as he would see fit. But there's hope and there's peace in submitting to him in the midst of all those situations because he's keeping it for us. And so when we replace pride with humility, we're able to come to God with our anxiety. We're able to have him give us great hope and we're able to come uh, to him with community. And God takes our weaknesses and he reminds us of his strength, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And lastly, that's what we need to replace. We need to replace our weakness with God's strength. Peter shows us how. He says the first thing we need to do, we need to remember who God is. Verse, verse 10, he says, remember the God of grace. One commentator writes, God is described as, as the God of grace, the God of all grace, reminding the readers that there is only one source. There is no other source of mercy in this life. There's just one God who rules and reigns over everything. There is none other. It's just him. As Peter writes these words, the people that he's writing to, they're living in the midst of the Roman Empire, one of the most powerful empires in the history of the world. And the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, right? Right about peace in amongst of all the city-states. How? Through absolute power. And through the crushing of any possible opposition. And, and for any people looking at that situation, it would have thought, they would have looked at that and thought, and the, the eternal power is Rome. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. And so Peter writes and he says on, in verse 11 right now, to God be power forever and ever and ever. He is the God of grace. There's one God. He rules. He reigns. Remember him. Remember that he's the God of grace. The one God who you can come to, but the one who has shown you great grace. So we remember who he is and all that he's done. We replace our weakness with his strength and we're able to live in light of who he is. But secondly, we need to remember who we are. So much of 1 Peter is about identity. Throughout his letter, Peter's been reminding these Christians and reminding us about the identity that we have because of the gospel. He says, you're exiles here, but you're citizens in heaven. He says, you're foreigners here, but you're God's adopted people, children of the king. You are his royal priesthood. You are his holy nation. You are set apart, chosen, loved, adopted by him. Verse 13, at the very end of his letter, he writes again to these people. He says, she in Babylon, the church in Babylon, who's chosen with you. He says, you are among those who God has chosen. If you remember all the way back to chapter one, Peter opens his letter and he says, you're foreigners who have a new calling. And the hope that you're going to need to live as foreigners here and citizens of God's kingdom is found in one thing. It's found in God's electing, choosing grace towards you. His choice to pursue you, his choice to love you, his choice to adopt you and save you when you didn't deserve it, when you could never earn it, and when you will never become worthy of it. Because he chose to love. That's such incredible dignity and value and worth and security that's, that's in God's choosing of us. And so we remember when 
that we are now his because of the gospel. We replace our weakness with his strength and we're able to stand firm in our faith and in our new identity as dearly loved children of God. Who cares what anyone else thinks? And so remember who God is. Remember who we are. And lastly, remember our true home. Verse 10 says, remember the God of grace, he goes on and says, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We have an eternal home, a lasting glory. For those without Christ, this world is the best it will ever get. For, for Christians, this world is the worst it is ever going to be. This is not our home. We are foreigners in a temporary place, but our true citizenship is in heaven. In heaven, we are children of the king of all things. And our suffering here, our trials here, for the sake of Jesus' name, they're, they are short. They're just for a little while in the scope of the eternal glory that's waiting. And so we're called to God's eternal glory. And when we remember that our true home isn't here, that our lasting home, our eternal home is in heaven, like Paul is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we'll be able to say that suffering in this life is but light and momentary affliction that is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. As we look not to the transient things that are seen, but to the eternal things that are unseen. So Peter reminds us about an eternal home and calls us to long for that, long for that home. Not, not in a way that keeps you distant or uninvolved in your life here. That would disregard like all of his letter, but rather to long for our eternal home in a way that empowers our lives here to be lived for that. We remember our true home. We remember our secure place there, made and kept by Jesus for us. When we replace our weakness, God's strength. What we need to stand firm in our faith, what we need to resist temptation, what we need to stand firm is God's strength. And remember who he is, remember who we are. And we, when we remember our true home, then we'll be able to stand firm in our faith no matter the situation because verse 10 tells us it's God himself who will strengthen us keep us steadfast and firm. He's the one who does it. He's the one who replaces our weakness with his strength. So Peter calls us, as he closes his letter, to stand firm, to hold your ground, not to turn back on God, not to run, not to flee when suffering or trials come. One commentator writes this. He says, the opposition Christians face from their non-Christian contemporaries is not something that can be avoided by modifying their behavior or adapting their beliefs in such a way to escape opposition. It's only by completely abandoning the gospel and the community shaped by it, only by submitting to the satanic forces that stand in total opposition to God can they escape the persecution we might otherwise face. He goes on to say, if the gospel is to survive in Asia where these Christians were being written to, these beleaguered Christians must not allow themselves to be scattered by the threat, but they must stand together in Christ and in the firm truths of the gospel. Because the growth of the gospel and the increase of God's kingdom is what's at stake. And that's worth living for. It's worth fighting for. It's worth holding our ground for. It's worth standing firm in. And so we arm ourselves with awareness of ourselves and of our enemy and of our 
fellow soldiers, we arm ourselves with humility instead of pride, and we arm ourselves with God's strength instead of our weaknesses so that our lives might actually be empowered to be lived for him so that his power might be displayed in us. Peter ends his letter by saying, I have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying you that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Throughout his letter, he said that the true grace of God just it isn't just the good news about the gospel. It's the good news about the gospel, especially in the midst of suffering, in the midst of opposition. The gospel is the best news in all the world. Never take it for granted. Never turn from it. Never look to something else. It's the true grace of God that we're to stand firm in. And in communion, what we're doing is we're remembering that true grace of God. What we're doing is we're remembering the gospel. And so we remind ourselves of the gospel every week because the gospel is the thing that we're to stand firm in. And it's the thing that we forget all the time. We forget how much we need Jesus. We forget how greatly Jesus met our need. And so we turn and we live for other things. And so every week we take communion not as a ritual, but we do it because we need to remember. We need to make space to remember. To remember that the bread reminds us about Jesus' body, which was broken for us. He lived the life we couldn't live, and he paid the penalty that we should have paid. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which is shed for us as he died the death that we were supposed to die as the penalty for our sin. And communion doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't save us. It doesn't change our status or our standing with God. Instead, communion is a way that we remember him. We remember the gospel. We remember Jesus' life, which was lived for us. We remember his death, which was died in our place for our sins so that we might actually live for him instead of ourselves. So that's why we sing and we worship. We celebrate all that Jesus has done and we choose to remember it. Because what we don't stand firm in is just some religious tradition. What we don't stand firm in is just the way we do things. What we stand firm in is the truth about the gospel which sets us free. So if you put your trust in Jesus as we stand, as we sing, whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. Do it as a celebration. Do it as a remembering of the gospel in which you're called to stand firm. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. God's people, the gospel is the good news in which we stand firm. But it's the good news that empowers us to stand firm as well. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for you. We're grateful for your word. We are so grateful for the truths of the gospel. God, we, we just ask, just, you know, God, we just confess, like, we just, we are so tempted to run all the time, to not stand firm and to not hold our ground, to give in to the pressures of society or the world around us or the people that are close to us that have different opposing opinions or views. And God, we need to remember that there's just one place that grace is found and it's in you. God, I pray that as your people that you would, Help us to understand just more deeply the good news about the gospel. 
You remind us often about how much we've needed you and how greatly you've met our need. And I pray that you would empower us as we experience that, as we remember it often. You empower us to stand firm in those truths. That's just you. You're the one God who reigns and rules over all things. You are the only one worth giving our lives for. We ask as your people that you would empower us to live that way in the midst of any circumstances or opposition to you. God, give us faith and boldness to do that. Keep us aware of our enemy. Keep us aware of our brothers and sisters. Give us humility. Give us your strength. We love you, God. Thanks that you have loved us first, called us as your people.